Good morning, good afternoon. My name is Anissa Belal. I'm a senior researcher at the Center on Conflict, Development and Peacebuilding of the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. It is my great pleasure and honor today to give you a lecture on a very fascinating topic, the responsibility of armed non-state actors in armed conflict. First of all, I would like to make a few preliminary remarks. The concept of non-state actor can cover a variety of actors in international relations. NGOs, non-governmental organizations, inter-governmental organizations, or even transnational corporations. Within the framework of this lecture, the types of actors I want to focus on can be described as armed non-state actors a terminology I will come back to in a moment. In addition, in situations of armed conflicts, several bodies of international law apply. While I will address some issues relating to these other bodies of law, I will mainly discuss on how armed non-state actors' behavior is regulated under the law of armed conflict, also known as International Humanitarian Law, IHL, terms that I will use interchangeably. And finally, this lecture is going to be divided in three parts. One, an overview of the context in which this discussion takes place, and a reflection on the concept of armed non-state actor. We will then examine, in the second part of the lecture, what is the applicable international law to armed non-state actors in armed conflict. And finally, we will question what are the challenges of implementation of the law of armed conflict by these actors. So why is it important to understand what are the responsibilities of armed non-state actors in armed conflicts? What is the context in which the discussion takes place? The answer is simple. For many years in a row now, non-international armed conflicts, which are conflicts that involve non-state actors, fighting against the armed forces of a state or against each other are the predominant types of armed conflict. It means, in other words, that armed non-state actors are the most prevalent actors operating in contemporary situations of armed violence. So against this background, how and to what extent their behavior is regulated by IHL and how we can enhance their respect of the norms to better protect civilians in armed conflict has been one of the main policy concerns of the international community. As mentioned before, the terms non-state actors can cover several types of actors. But what are armed non-state actors? Well, the umbrella terms, armed non-state actors, is often used alongside with other ones, such as armed groups, insurgents, rebels, freedom fighters, or even simply terrorists. While these terms potentially depict the same or at least a similar reality, they may convey quite different perceptions of what they in fact represent. In that sense, these are subjective terms. Thus, joining rebel groups or freedom fighters can be perceived as a noble and even just endeavor, while being part of a so-called terrorist group or criminal organization 
can be much more problematic, not only from a moral, but also, of course, from a legal point of view. In law, words and what they describe matter, as definitions or classifications will usually inform the applicable legal regime to a particular person or entity or a particular act or behavior. Interestingly, international law does not contain one single definition of an armed non-state actor or similar concepts, either in treaties or customary international law. However, international law, in particular the law of armed conflict, regulates armed non-state actors according to a certain number of their characteristics. We will have a deeper look at the applicable law later, but for the moment, let us note that, for instance, under Protocol Additional 1 to the Geneva Conventions, an authority representing a people, and I quote, a term which is nowhere defined in the treaty, has the possibility to make a declaration under Article 96, which has legal consequences. Similarly, it has been argued that armed non-state actors, which can be considered as de facto authority, another undefined notion in treaty or customary international law, may have human rights obligations, unlike other types of armed non-state actors. Finally, armed non-state actors qualified as terrorist organizations will also be treated differently under international law, as well as in policy. So, I invite you to consider and think critically about the binary mode we choose to describe these actors. Armed versus non-armed. State versus non-state. Actor or group versus individual. An armed organization seems to indicate that it carries weapon and may use force. As such, it will be bound by certain rules of either IHL or human rights law, notably on law enforcement. However, using the term armed to define a certain type of non-state actor, as opposed to non-armed, is problematic, as it is not precise enough and can induce confusion. For instance, is the civil administration of an armed non-state actor also to be considered an armed actor and subject to the same rules of international law? Similarly, can we consider the United Nations as an armed non-state actor because it deploys in certain countries robust peacekeeping operations? The, confusions, the confusion lies in the fact that the term armed refers to two different, although related, notions. First, the nature of the actor, an armed actor, can indeed be state military forces or the police, but also a rebel group or a private military and security company or even a drug cartel. Second, the term armed also indicates the means a particular actor uses to achieve a certain goal, i.e. the use of armed force, which can be legal or not. To my mind, the better way to understand the term armed is to consider it is a distinguished feature of non-state actors, and then to discuss on the means, that is, armed violence, used by these actors to attain certain goals. Focusing on the use of armed force, 
as a means to an end also helps in devising typologies of armed non-state actors, allowing a better understanding of their modes of actions and strategies. The term armed is also a way to distinguish between different non-state actors and to reflect on the legality of the use of force under international law. If we turn to the dichotomy between state and non-state now, by non-state, one can understand that it refers to an entity not acting under the lawful authority of any state, as the UN Security Council put it, as being distinct from the armed forces of the state, or simply not being actually a state. With any further clarification, non-state actors can thus include a wide range of entities, such as armed groups, civil society, religious groups, as well as non-governmental and intergovernmental organizations. From a legal point of view, it is useful to remember that even when they are distinct from the state, the behavior of non-state actors can sometimes directly engage the responsibility of a state under international law. The UN International Commission's draft articles on the responsibility of states for international wrongful acts, which represent customary international law, foresees that possibility, for example, when a non-state actor acts under the control of a state, when the non-state actor has exercised elements of governmental authority in the absence or default of official state authorities, or when a non-state actor becomes the new government, the state then assumes responsibility for the violations committed by the non-state actors before it assumed power. In these different scenarii, the relationship between the state and the non-state actor is clearly established in international law. From a more general perspective, though, the non-state character of an armed non-state actor can be equivocal in at least three cases. When it possesses all the, of, all the attributes of a state, but it is not recognized or only partially recognized by other states. Two, when the armed non-state actors is also so-called national liberation movement, and when it is considered as a de facto authority. So, we can see that in these three different cases, the label non-state can be deceiving. The third critical aspect I would like to highlight is the notion of actor or group versus the notion of individual. As we will discuss later, there is a discrepancy in international law about the implementation of the obligations binding armed non-state actors. While these obligations are imposed on collective entities, as we will see, the only available means of enforcement is through individual criminal law. Another point with regard to the notion of the choice of words like group versus actor is related to the fact that some armed non-state actors do not consider themselves to be armed groups, but rather view themselves as de facto authorities or political movements of which the armed struggle dimension is only but one aspect of a broader objective.
So, what are armed non-state As I just alluded to, there are no simple way to define them. To borrow from Aristotle's concept, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. The term armed non-state actor is more than the sum of its words, as each of them have their own meanings and significance. I will not be able to develop these thoughts much further within this lecture, but we should at least be aware of this. The rather unnuanced approach with which legal and policy narratives describe the concept of armed non-state actor is symptomatic of a broader issue. Contemporary forms of armed violence and the multiplicity of the types of armed non-state actors operating today cannot be grasped nor regulated with the binary mode of thinking. I am coming now to the second part of the lecture. What is, in fact, the applicable international law to armed non-state actors, or in other words, do armed non-state actors have legal obligations in the context of armed conflicts? And if yes, what are they? As mentioned before in this lecture, I will focus mainly on how the law of armed conflict, or IHL, regulates the behavior of these actors. However, other bodies of international law which apply in armed conflicts situations are, are also concerned. For example, international human rights law touches upon the issue of the administration of civilian life by non-state actors that exercise some form of public functions. General public international law is relevant when it comes to the use of force by armed non-state actors or issues of self-defense. International criminal law covers the issue of the responsibility of, of individual members of armed non-state actors accused of committing international crimes. And finally, counterterrorism and domestic law are also obviously relevant when it comes to armed non-state actors regulation. Coming back to the law of armed conflict, the International Criminal Tribunal for Ex-Yugoslavia, the ICTY, has confirmed that customary international law requires two conditions to be fulfilled for the law of armed conflict to be applicable. One, the level of violence between state armed forces and armed non-state actors must be protracted. That is, not only of a certain duration, but also quite intense. Second, armed non-state actors must reach a certain level of organization for IHL to apply. In that respect, IHL has, you know, also a rather unnuanced approach about the types of armed non-state actors concerned. As long as they reach a minimum degree of organization, their structure or ideology becomes irrelevant. This approach is justified in order to cast the IHL net as broadly as possible and ensure the maximum protection possible for all those impacted by armed conflict. So, to summarize, once an organized armed non-state actor is involved in protracted violence with either governmental forces or other armed non-state actors, it will become a party 
to an armed conflict and be bound as a consequence by specific IHL obligations. If these conditions are not reached, IHL will not apply and the situation that could rather be qualified as internal disturbances will be regulated by human rights law and domestic law only. Now, historically, the applicability of the law of armed conflict to armed non-state actors has been very gradual. In 1949, when the Geneva Conventions were adopted, only one single provision, Common Article 3 to the four Geneva Conventions, was deemed applicable to conflicts involving armed non-state actors. Obviously, at that time, the majority of armed conflicts were interstate conflicts. Almost 20 years later, the 1977 Additional Protocol 1 was negotiated to complement the Geneva Conventions. And the law applicable in conflicts between states, that is, international armed conflicts, including what particular type of armed non-state actors in its scope of application, so-called national liberation movements. The second 1977 additional protocol, called the Protocol 2, Additional Protocol 2, or AP2, is however entirely devoted to non-international armed conflict and was meant to address a wider range of armed non-state actors operating in such conflicts. Finally, and this is very important, in parallel, customary IHL has developed to cover the many legal issues that were not addressed in treaty law. An important issue to keep in mind is that because armed non-state actors are not technically parties to treaties, as they do not sign them, nor participate in their drafting or negotiations, the precise legal means by which they are actually bound, technically, by IHL treaty law has been questioned by scholarships, but also sometimes by case law. However, state practice, international case law, and scholarship have come to confirm that common Article 3 as well as relevant treaty provisions applied to armed non-state actors directly. In fact, one of the issues discussed today by scholarship is not so much whether IHL is binding or not on armed non-state actors, but to what extent their practice and understanding of humanitarian law should be or not considered for law-making purposes. What are then the obligations, or if you prefer, the concrete responsibilities of armed non-state actors in non-international armed conflict? Common Article 3 sets the basic obligations of all parties to a non-international armed conflict. In a nutshell, this fundamental article protects, and I quote, all persons taking no active part in the hostilities, including members of armed forces, who have laid down their arms and those placed hors de combat by sickness, wounds, detention, or any other cause. These persons are protected from murder, torture, or cruel, humiliating, or degrading treatment. It prohibits the taking of hostages. And Common Article 3 also requires respect of fair trial guarantees 
and obliges all parties to an armed conflict to collect and care for the wounded and sick. The violations of these norms might constitute war crimes. With regard to the 1977 Additional Protocol 2, all the 18 substantial rules are applicable in non-international armed conflicts and therefore are also binding on armed non-state actors. Contrary to Common Article 3, which requires only a minimum degree of organization, armed non-state actors falling within the scope of application of AP2 must reach a higher threshold of organization. Indeed, in addition to the existence of an armed conflict between the insurgency and the government taking place in the territory of a high contracting party, a state, there are three cumulative material conditions under Article 1 for the treaty to be applicable to armed non-state actors. First, the organized armed non-state actor must be under responsible command, and this is also true, actually, for common Article 3, it must exercise such control over a part of the national territory as to enable it to carry out sustained and concerted military operations. This is different from Common Article 3. And territorial control must be such as to enable the group to be able to implement the protocol. There are thus two main differences between these norms. Common Article 3 is applicable to armed violence also between armed non-state actors, and this is quite common in contemporary conflicts, and does not require territorial control. AP2 only applies to conflict opposing armed non-state actors and state armed forces, and requires control of territory, and thus a higher degree of organization of the group. Among the core obligations of AP2 complementing those of Common Article 3, armed non-state actors must respect the fundamental guarantees of the persons within their power, including ensuring that children benefit from specific care and protection. Persons in detention must notably be provided with basic goods and must be judged according to fair trial guarantees. As in common Article 3, wounded and sick persons must be collected and cared for. AP2 also regulates humanitarian relief operations. And finally, an important layer of obligations pending on armed non-state actors finds its source in customary international humanitarian law. Research, and in particular the International Committee of the Red Cross Customary Law Study, has indeed provided evidence that many rules of customary international law apply in both international and non-international armed conflict. In particular, the gaps in the regulations on the conduct of hostilities, which are not present in Additional Protocol 2, have largely been filled through state practice. To be clear, and this is very important, it means notably that armed non-state actors must respect the principle of distinction, proportionality and precaution when conducting targeting military operations. This was not foreseen in treaty laws, I, I just said, and AP2 only contained general principles on the protection of civilians.
Despite the convergence between the law of interstate conflicts and non-international conflicts, one core and essential difference remains. There is no prisoner of war status in non-international armed conflicts. Perhaps here I should pause a minute to explain what it means to have prisoner of war status in the law of armed conflict. This, in fact, touches to the core of how international law conceives the conduct of war. Benefiting from POW status means that a combatant cannot be judged by the detaining opposing state for having participated in hostilities. To put it simply, if a soldier kills another enemy soldier in the conduct of hostilities, provided he or she respected IHL rules of distinction, precaution and proportionality, he or she cannot be judged for murder by the state which has captured him or her. This privileged status is only afforded in conflicts between states and to a certain category of persons, in particular members of the armed forces of a state, soldiers, if you want. In non-international armed conflicts, there is no such status, and the reason is the following. Obviously, in domestic law, the use of force is only granted to state authorities. Individuals using force collectively to reach a certain objective is prohibited by domestic criminal law. Such individuals, typically members of armed non-state actors, face the possibility to be judged for murder at the domestic level for participating in hostilities by the state against which they are fighting. Some states even condemn them to death if they are captured. So, you can already sense the tension. On the one hand, members of armed non-state actors do not benefit from POW status. But on the other, customary international law recognizes that they can target military objectives under the rules of international humanitarian law. This is why IHL also encourages states to provide for amnesties in the context of non-international armed conflicts for those members of armed non-state actors who only participate in hostilities but have not committed war crimes. We will see that there are other points of tension in international law when it comes to armed non-state actors, in particular from an implementation perspective. But for the moment, allow me to add a few words about armed non-state actors' obligations under other bodies of international law. It is not possible to address the issue of the responsibility of armed non-state actors in armed conflicts without mentioning the debate about whether or not these actors also have to respect international human rights law, in particular when they exercise some form of de facto authority over a population living under their control. It is a very controversial issue, both at the doctrinal level but also at the level of state practice. Some authors are of the opinion that international human rights law has only been conceived to apply to states as they exercise jurisdiction and control over a population. Other scholars argue, and to my mind rightly so, that human rights should protect all the individuals, 
that live under the control of a de jure or de facto authority the same way. To phrase differently, it is not because someone lives under the control of an armed group that he or she should not enjoy the same rights as someone living under the control of a state. States in general are reluctant to go down that route, but human rights protection mechanisms call for a more nuanced approach to this issue, bearing in mind the need to protect the persons living under the control of armed non-state actors. Finally, I would add that it is important to consider also what armed non-state actors have to say about this. Many of these actors claim they want to respect and protect human rights. They also have instituted some form of human rights supervision mechanisms. While this does not impact on the legal relevance of these claims, I would argue that it would be absurd not to engage these armed non-state actors to respect human rights if they are willing to do so in practice on the basis that they would not be formally bound by international human rights law. Let me now turn to the final and third part of this lecture. What are the challenges of implementation of IHL by armed non-state actors? We have looked at the obligations of armed non-state actors under IHL. We need now to examine how they actually implement them. I will make three points in this regard. First, there is what I call the paradox of armed non-state actors' responsibility under international law. As we have seen, IHL requires armed groups to be collectively organized in order to be applicable. In other words, under IHL, armed non-state actors are considered to be collective actors and not merely a collection of individuals that would use force randomly. But neither IHL nor general international law has devised ways to hold these actors responsible as collective entities. There is, for example, no secondary rules of responsibility to help us consider when an act can be attributed to an armed non-state actor. There is no mechanism that would be able to establish the responsibility of an armed non-state actor as such for the violations of an international treaty. There are no precise rules on reparation. In fact, the only way to hold an armed non-state actor responsible is through individual criminal responsibility. There are, however, reasons for holding a group itself responsible for the violations of international law committed by its members. From a moral point of view, for example, the group may condone, justify, and even incite individuals to commit crimes. Another compelling reason is that the person committed, who committed the violations with the support of the group might be dead. This would prevent any possibility of obtaining reparation in an individualized criminal trial. The group, on the other hand, might have assets that could be seized if responsibility is established. It could also offer symbolic reparations by recognizing the commission of the crimes or provide for information 
to the family of victims. The second point I would like to mention relates to the state-centric system of public international law and the impact this has on IHL implementation. Armed non-state actors cannot participate to the norms they are yet bound to apply. But given the intrinsic inequality in structure, legal personality and capacity between armed non-state actors and states, holding them accountable for the implementation and respect of rules that were designed and negotiated by states is problematic. First, armed non-state actors might not be capable of implementing certain rules which are capacity-intensive. In addition, they may not interpret the norms similarly as states, let alone agree with them. For these reasons, I am convinced that including how armed non-state actors understand, perceive or interpret the norms they are bound to apply will benefit the implementation and efficiency of public international law as a whole and thus enhance its credibility. The third point and final one I would like to raise is about the necessity of engagement of armed non-state actors and the need to change the narratives. While it is true that many armed non-state actors seek to be recognized by the international community as well as by their own internal audience as credible and legitimate actors, states are reluctant to engage armed non-state actors for fear of legitimizing them and instead often label them as terrorists. But international law makes clear that engaging armed non-state actors on enhancing their responsibility in armed conflicts does not provide for legal recognition. In particular, Common Article 3 specifies that when an impartial humanitarian organization offers its services to armed non-state actors, or when they enter special agreement to bring into force all the provisions of the treaty, this shall not affect the legal status of the parties to the conflict. And I just quoted Common Article 3. Research has shown that labeling all armed non-state actors as terrorists is counterproductive and may even result in critical groups being excluded from peace negotiations. There are obviously actors that adopt calculated policies and military strategies which deliberately aim at terrorizing civilians as well as their enemy. In this case, it is important to set clear legal responsibilities for all actors that disrespect international law. That being said, even for extremely violent armed non-state actors, it has been shown that some form of humanitarian discussion was possible, for example, through indirect means, such as using the positive influence of armed non-state actors' close constituencies or religious leaders. But there are also certain armed non-state actors which genuinely desire to behave in a humanitarian way and view themselves as being responsible for the fate of those that live under their control. It is thus important to consider armed non-state actors not only as perpetrators of violations of international law, but also as actors that can sometimes 
play positive roles in the implementation of international law. This is particularly true for unknown state actors that control territory and administer population for a long period of time. Of course, unknown state actors differ in types, structures, and ideology. This, however, should not prevent states from recognizing that these actors might also be driven by consideration of humanity, which permits many areas of IHL and can be a powerful incentive to respect the norms. To conclude, in the years to come, armed non-state actors are likely to remain alive and powerful actors in geopolitics and armed conflicts. Public international law, and in particular the combination of the four Geneva Conventions, the protocols and customary international humanitarian law, do provide for broad protection and seems to be able to adapt to the realities of contemporary forms of non-international armed conflicts. That being said, elaborating on the definition and concept of armed non-state actors, considering their perception and impact on lawmaking and interpretation of key humanitarian norms, clarifying the secondary norms on responsibility are some of the key issues that the international community should address. While this might be politically sensitive for most states, considering how these actors perceive and position themselves in the international legal scene is actually essential to improve the respect of the law. In that regard, it is perhaps time to consider drafting a more detailed and inclusive set of norms applicable in non-international armed conflict, considering the views of armed non-state actors on these issues. It remains to be seen whether or not the time is ripe for this kind of endeavor. In any case, and at a minimum, it is essential the international community adopt a more complex and nuanced approach when it comes to armed non-state actors' regulation and engagement. I thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this lecture and I thank the UN Audiovisual Library of International Law for the opportunity.